bum bum bottom 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 in session with the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. I'm Lisa Gullickson. I'm Brad Gullickson. And each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four-color realm. This episode, we're traveling the Wanderer's Road with Miyamoto Usagi and Tomo Ame from Usagi Yojimbo by Stan Sakai. And we're applying Let the Samurai Be Your Guide by Lori Sugawa Whaley to their relationship woes. Yeah, so excited to be finally kicking off a new couple series I feel like we drew out our talk regarding Don and Norrin Rad for as long as we possibly (laughs) could. We did not want to let them go, but it's time to move on. And I am really thrilled to be moving on into Usagi Yojimbo, which is one of my heart comics. Me too. I mean... The beginning of... Not to bring up the pandemic, (laughs) but when Brad... When Brad starts spiraling, he grabs onto a piece of pop culture and holds on for dear life. And at the beginning of the the quarantine, Brad's, like, safety was tearing through these Usagi comics. Yeah, I mean, they really were a mental buoy. Like, I don't know if I could have gotten through those first few months of the lockdown without Stan Sakai's comics. Uh, And I want to get into that a little bit more uh, after our our banter. We're we're in the banter stage right now. And so I want to talk about that experience a little bit more after we get done with the banter. But I also want to, I want to take a moment here to celebrate What's been going on with CBCC these last couple of weeks? Number one, we were named one of the best podcasts for book lovers by BuzzFeed. We were ranked number six, which is, as I will tell everyone and anyone who will listen, 40 (laughs) slots ahead of LeVar Burton Reads, which is a great podcast, and I am so humbled and a little ashamed to be so far ahead of LeVar Burton, Jordy LaForge, reading Rainbow. I mean, that's crazy. Well, I think the greatest compliment goes to our listeners because clearly they are people of extraordinary taste. Yes. And there are uh, clearly at least 51 other literature podcasts they could be listening to, and they chose this one. So congrats on you. And, and before my head gets too large, you do have to realize with a BuzzFeed ranking that it is not like the product of the entire BuzzFeed community <laughs> selecting us for this list. It's it's one person writing that list. And, uh, you know, like, that's awesome. And we should shout her out. Lisa, what's her name? Kirby Beaton. So Kirby Beaton, thank you so much for considering us. But it's not like we've been knighted or anything, right, Lisa? Is it like we've been knighted? Uh, to me, I kind of feel like it is. I don't know. It's stupid. I'm being silly. But it really... I mean, it really... It was fun. It was fun. It's nice. Our love languages are words of affirmation. That's right. That's right. And yeah. it felt great. And um, I liked tweeting about it. It's made my month. It's made my month. But I'll shut up about it. I got to I gotta be humble. Got to be humble. Got to be humble. Ah, oh, however, we also launched 
our Patreon this, this I past am, week. Uh, this is another thing I am extraordinarily proud of and I can take more credit for. Yeah. Well, yeah. This, this is your responsibility? Well, I mean, we we can't throw it to Kirby Beat. Oh, that's true. She didn't that's make true, our true. Patreon. I thought you were going to be like, Brad, this is all me. The Patreon <laughs> is me. That has never been true of anything that is CBCC related. Yeah, it's it's always been 50-50. That's for sure. That's for sure. Um, but we're excited about the Patreon. We've already gotten a bunch of uh, folks jumping into that community. I think we're offering a lot of really fun things there. We've got our comically real episodes where we break down comic book movie adaptations. We've done an episode on Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer. That was a total blast. Next week, we're going to be recording a conversation about the classic movie, Howard the Duck. Uh, we did an entire bonus episode centered around our experiences with Couch to 5K and uh, how they've uh, erupted some arguments between Lisa and myself. Yeah, things have gotten pretty real over there in the Patreon. We're not going to harp on it because we know, especially in times like these, it is not in everybody's budget to uh, join a super cool, exclusive Patreon community. Even the $1 gets you access to all the bonus episodes. That is true. But uh, we we love you as well, even if you're not a, a Patreon, Patreon yeah. subscriber. <laughs> if you have any interest in what we're doing here like we really appreciate you and um but we will be including some words of affirmation for our patreon subscribers in the center of the episode because we really appreciate them and we do want to give them a little shout out we did drop the fantastic four episode in our feed right before this episode so if you want to know like why we're doing what we're doing you can listen to that one basically it comes down to we're trying to buy back some time so that we can devote into this podcast, free Lisa of a few of her students that she teaches, uh, free uh, me of some of the articles that I write. And that way we can, you know, uh, like we're having so much fun with comic book couples counseling right now, and we want to have more fun and we want to devote more time to it. So that's why we kicked off the Patreon. Uh, but if you listen to that Fantastic Four episode, I think you'll see like the, the flavor that you're going to get over there and how it's a little bit different than what we're delivering in the main show. But the main show... Like, that's our one true love. That's our OTP. Mm-hmm. Our one true podcast. That's our one true podcast. That's right. And getting into Usagi Ojimbo, like, this is why we started the podcast to tackle couples like Miyamoto and Tomo and also Norin and Don. I mean, we're now getting into couples that Brad and Lisa cherish deeply and sincerely and have trouble even wrapping their own emotions around these characters and discussing it. So this is, we're on the couch now. This is Brad and Lisa on the couch as much as it is Miyamoto and Tomo, right? Yeah. Uh, Well, we believe deeply that we are created by the stories we tell each other and the stories we become fascinated with. So to share these these pieces of art with you is to share a piece of ourselves. Yeah, and it can be, um, what's the word? Uh, Like, it makes us vulnerable. I feel a little vulnerable. I mean, sharing Usagi Ojimba with Lisa, uh, if you have been in the love nest, you would have seen some anxiety from my point of view because I really want Lisa to fall in love with Usagi Ojimba, but I don't want to rush anything and I don't want to push it either. 
Because I, is it because of my uh, reservations about stories that have to do with quests and knights and... Yeah, you're not the biggest Lord of the Rings fan. You don't like medieval knights. Uh, you dig on the sa- the occasional samurai film, but... I do because I like morality tales. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I was I was just a little nervous because, again, like I love it so much. I want you to love it as much as I do. That's why I'm, a- I'm anxious about this series. Uh, but, you know, Usagi Ujimbo... That is a comic book and a character. Well, Usagi Ujimbo is not the character. Miyamoto Usagi is the character that has been around for a long time, seemingly forever. Uh, first appearing in the second issue of Albedo Anthropomorphics in November of 1984, the rabbit Ronin, known as Miyamoto Usagi, almost instantaneously sparked curiosity and interest from readers. Fanagraphics books were the first to give the Stan Sakai character his own series after testing him out in the Usagi Yojimbo summer special two years later. After 38 issues with Fanagraphics, Sakai then took the character over to Mirage Comics for 16 issues, and then Usagi made his home for a very long time at Dark Horse Comics, and only recently did Sakai move the character to IDW Publishing. This publishing musical chairs can make collecting the comics a little challenging, but all the titles we're covering in our next four episodes are gettable for a relatively low price. It may require a little hunting, but it should not bankrupt you. As it did us. As it did us. I like like the story of how Stan Sakai is like a Ronin himself, Mm. going from publisher to publisher you know, doing what he feels is right. Right for his character. Yeah. You know, and, and clearly, you know, he has methodically um, considered the narrative, but also the delivery system. He wants to make sure that he's getting his character out to as many people as possible while also retaining the rights to that character. Mm. Originally, Sakai planned to tell his samurai saga using human characters as his titular hero is modeled after the incredible life of Miyamoto Musashi, um, Musashi was a Japanese swordsman, philosopher, writer, and ronin, a.k.a. a masterless samurai. You'll know that because Sakai loves to use the asterisks and let you know that a ronin is a masterless samurai, panel after panel after panel. I appreciate it, well, frankly. I, I do, too. And Sakai comes from the old school method of, look, this comic is going to be somebody's first Usagi Yojimbo comic, and they need to know what a ronin is. And guess what? Comic book readers are not perfect. We're not going to remember every single term every single time. Absolutely, absolutely. But uh, Musashi lived from 1584 to 1645, and he's considered a kensai or sword saint. Uh, He is the author of the Book of Five Rings, which detailed his martial arts and swordsmanship techniques, but also included lots of personal philosophies that you'll see pop up in all manner of self-help and business books these days. Many novels and films have documented the life and legend uh, of Musashi. Toshiro Mifune played the character in an excellent trilogy of films available from the Criterion Collection. It's Samurai 1, Samurai 2, and Samurai 3. And it should also be pointed out that the lovely Lady Tomo Ame, uh, the unrequited love of Miyamoto Usagi, is based on a real-life figure as well, Tome Gozen, a female samurai who lived during the Genpai War, uh, which is like the Japanese Civil War that holds great significance, actually, to the prologue of Grass Cutter, our first Usagi Ojimbo comic book that we're going to be talking about in this episode. Uh, her physical appearance is supposedly based on the Sony Chi co-star Atsuko Shiomi, although I don't really see it myself, but whatever uh, motivates Sakai, that's on him. 
anyway, one day Stan Sakai was doodling and he drew a rabbit Ronin with his ears tied up in a top knot. The image obviously tickled the creator's fancy, and suddenly the anthropomorphic world around Usagi Ojimbo started to form. The popularity of the character really kicked off when Sakai moved Usagi Ojimbo over to Mirage Comics. He was very buddy-buddy with the publishers Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, the creators of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and through that relationship, Usagi found his way onto the 80s kids cartoon, and that's where I personally encountered him for the first time. And actually, I think I saw his Playmates action figure before I ever saw his television episode. Um, Now, Lisa... Did you ever watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles growing up? No, not really. Like, I have memories of going to my neighbor best friend's house, Tina. Mm. She liked to watch all of the 80s cartoons, uh, including Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But I really wasn't interested in the action type Yeah, you're a a funny cartoon person. Yeah, I liked Garfield. (laughs) I liked Looney Tunes and Tiny Tunes. Ooh, Muppet Babies. Even though Muppet Babies isn't very funny a lot of the time. Animaniacs, yeah. So I wasn't into Ninja Turtles. As an adult, I've been getting into them a lot more, particularly because of our friend Brian, who is a Ninja Turtles maniac. At the Turtle Dork on Twitter. That's right. And uh, so now I've seen the live-action 90s movies, and I cherish each of them in their own individual way. I find them all very entertaining. And like what attracts Brian to it is the ideas of like fraternity Mm -hmm. and found family, Mm -hmm. which I also really appreciate now watching these films through Brian's eyes. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't read any Ninja Turtles comics, though we own all of them. It can happen at any second. (laughs) You never know. You never know. Um, But but yeah, uh, as a kid... Um, I have one distinct Ninja Turtles memory, and you've heard this already, and I might have even told it on the podcast, but one Lent, I gave up cartoons, right? Um, and uh, so I went over to my friend Tina's house, and Tina, her family was Iranian, still is, uh, um, and they're Muslim, so she's like, I don't care about this Lent thing. I'm watching, I'm watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, so I sat with my back towards <laughs> the television like a saint. Such a good little Catholic girl. And listened to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, though I think it would have been a lot harder for me not to look if it was an, a cartoon I actually enjoyed. So when did you become aware of Usagi Yojimbo? Literally only through you and only through you being marginally interested because we would go to different comic book conventions. Um, He was at Baltimore Comic Con at least once. Yeah. And then he always gets the same booth at San Diego Comic Con. Yeah. And it was to the right of one of the main entrances of the exhibit hall. So we would always pass that booth. And for so many years, Brad goes, ah, Stan Sakai, he's he's awesome. I've been meaning to read those comics. I can't go over there because what if he quizzes me? I can't. I clearly haven't put in the effort to be a fan of him yet, but I there's a pin in that guy for me. Well, I mean, ever since I was a little kid, I was intrigued by Usagi's design. But 
I never really ventured into the comics. Uh, They never came across my vision. I was certainly not the kind of kid to read black and white comics one, and my brain was flooded with Spider-Man and X-Men and more traditional superhero stuff. I mean, Usagi doesn't look like any other character. No, no. Where I go, like, I I would wonder, like, what is the intrigue there? Because he looks almost... Looney Tune-esque, very simple and very flat. Yeah, well, and that's the appeal. You know, it's deceptively simple. And the more you read of Usagi Ojimbo, the more clear it becomes, like, how refined a line Stan Sakai has. But also, that's the appeal, too. You're, you ask, like, what's what, what, what brings you in? What's the intrigue? The intrigue is these funny animal characters carrying katanas. Mm, yeah. Well, now that I've read one volume, I've read Grass Cutter, like the richness comes from taking that very simple character and putting him in these elaborate surroundings. And true historical surroundings. But I'm not talking about like story context. I'm just talking about visual mm. richness where he really becomes, he takes these simple, simple lines, but then through blank space and more dense, like, textured space. Yeah, he blows it out. Yeah, it's beautiful. As I got older, the desire to explore Usagi Ojimbo grew and grew, but by that time, there were so many comics available, it felt a little intimidating, right? I've always been the kind of reader who wants to start at the beginning, and the thought of starting Usagi at the beginning was quite exhausting. Somewhere along the way, I did read the Grasscutter trade paperback, and I enjoyed it, but again, for whatever reason, I did not explore further. I just stared at Stan's table at Comic-Con and kicked myself every year for having not actually plunged in. Now, thankfully, ha 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 ha, 2020 was struck by a pandemic, and in March, Lisa and I went into full lockdown mode, and I just started devouring all of those Dark Horse Comics Usagi Yojimbo Saga collections. And, you know, the the great thing about the lockdown was all those comic books, this is, again, not the great thing, but comic book stores were hurting, right? You know, Diamond had shut down, no new singles were coming out, and it gave you an opportunity as a reader to support those shops, and one of the ways that I did that was call around to these stores that were at least doing mail orders and saying, hey, do you have a Usagi Ojimbo Saga collection? And I got most of them from Third Eye Comics in Annapolis, Maryland, and they hooked me up at you know the 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 price of the book when it was published. That's what they sold it at, and that's not what you see on eBay. You can find some of these Saga collections for you know hundreds of dollars. But I would encourage our listeners call up your local shops, or maybe not even your local shops, but call up. Any shop that will deliver to you. If it's not in your state, another one will ship it to you. Get the books for a good discount. It just requires a little research. That's the ideal, but the realness is we did have to buy some from eBay. Yeah, a few of them. I did, a few of them. <laughs> uh, I, I, I didn't spend any, uh, let's see, I didn't go north of $100. I think the most I spent was 80 bucks for one of the Saga collections. Yes. Um, so and that's a chunk. That's a chunk of change for it's a book. A, it is a chunk of change. It's a chunk of change. But having done it, I can tell you, well worth it. No. No regrets. No regrets. No regrets. Uh, so, yeah, I read all the sagas and then I went back and read the big box set of the early stuff from Fanographics. Uh, so, you know, for me, 2020 has been the year of the rabbit Ronin. Now, having read every single Usagi Yojimbo comic, the challenge became okay, 
if we're going to discuss the unrequited romance between Miyamoto and Tomei, where do we begin? Grass Cutter is not their first encounter. In fact, while both characters have significant roles in this storyline, neither character actually meets the other in one panel. They don't share a panel together. Uh, at one point... Usagi does think of her. That's right. That's right. That's as, that's as intimate as it gets between these two in this volume. But Grass Cutter is the Usagi Yojimbo comic. And I think it's the one most people point new readers toward because it's this beautiful microcosm of the Usagi Yojimbo saga cut down into 200 pages. It has everything. A deep sense of Japanese history and mythology, lots of action, a wide cast of unique characters, comedy, supernatural horror, and grand stakes for the nation of Japan, as well as our hero Usagi. It is my favorite Usagi Yojimbo story. Mm, no. And I actually think the sequel to Grass Cutter, Grass Cutter 2, is even better. But if you're looking to get a good taste of Usagi Yojimbo, Grass Cutter is where I think you should start. Word of warning, though, I think it should be said that this book does start with four prologues. <laughs> yeah, okay. That don't just, you know, give you insight into Usagi Yojimbo's story, but literally contextualizes all of the various kami of, and it goes so far back that it goes to the creation of Japan within yeah. the universe. I, and so that is intimidating. And I mean, I mean, Lisa, you're the one who can really speak to this. You know, when you cracked open the book and you're like four prologues. And they're dense. And like, I knew that we would be talking about this. So I'm like, I feel like I have to memorize all of these various kami on the off chance that they'll come up again. And they do. But at the same time, I think you can just go like, yeah, there's a bunch of, I mean, if you wanted to skip the prologues, I mean, don't, but you can. I mean, I, I, I don't agree with that. But I think if you get through those prologues, then it certainly enriches the story and it will hook you by the end of that fourth prologue. And it, you know, the rest of the story will make you go, I'm so glad I read those prologues. Okay, yeah. But don't stress yourself out and make flashcards of the various coming and memorize them all because... Sure, sure, fair. Because nobody's quizzing you. Yeah, well, you know, like Usagi Yojimbo had already published a decade's worth of comic books before Grasscutter, and this story does act as a big payoff for a lot of those stories that built up over that time. And a first-time reader may miss some of those connections, but also Stan Sakai structures every Usagi Yojimbo comic, like we were saying, as if it was the reader's first. So... You may not get those payoffs, but you also don't feel like you're being deprived anything if you just jump into Grass Cutter. Yeah, and I did. I did just jump into Grass Cutter, and I felt like I understood everything that was going on. Yeah, all you, all you really need to know is that Miyamoto Usagi was once a retainer for Lord Mifune. Uh, during the Battle of Adachi Plain, Mifune was struck down dead. To prevent his lord's head from being taken as a trophy, Usagi severed it and hid it in a nearby forest. From that day forward, Usagi wanders the land as a ronin, a samurai without a master, practicing the warrior code of Bushido, avoiding conflict where he can. Now, Lady Tomoame is the advisor and bodyguard for Lord Noriyuki, the child panda leader of the Gishu clan. And here's the other thing. 
I'm going to be mispronouncing names. I'm going to do my best. I've done some pronunciation lookups, but I'm not going to get it right every single time. I'm Brad. It's hard for me, but I'm trying. We're doing the best we can. But Tomei, she's a total badass with a blade, and the few duels that she's had with Usagi in the past have always ended in a tie. That's so hot. I Yes, it is. Uh, I wish I had gotten into the history of Stan Sakai a bit here. The man is a beast on the page, like Lisa was saying. Writer, penciler, inker, letterer. This guy does it all, and in my opinion, never once produced a Usagi Yojimbo comic that was not good. Every comic is beautiful, and that's amazing, astonishing, also kind of intimidating. Mm. I love collaboration in comics, but there is something kind of magical about receiving a singular vision. Yeah, magical because it's so rare. There aren't a lot of Stan Sakai's. I mean, maybe like a Jeff Smith and a few others. But I mean, it's a really rare experience in this art form. Uh, What I want to do for the next episode is to talk a little bit more about Stan Sakai, his history, how he came to be. But we really need to move into our love guru. Uh, Lisa, how are we applying Let the Samurai Be Your Guide to Miyamoto and Tomei for this episode? The full title is Let the Samurai Be Your Guide, The Seven Bushido Pathways to Personal Success by Laura Sugawa Whaley. It's not a relationship book exactly, but from what Brad told me about the story, Usagi and Lady Tomo have a largely unrequited love, and I wanted something that we could apply to them separately as well as together. And we know that by working on ourselves, it automatically makes our relationships better. Yeah. I looked for something relating to the Bushido because I've watched enough Kurosawa movies to know that Bushido is the coat of the samurai and Usagi and Tomo are both samurai and there we have it. Gave a quick goog, picked (laughs) the first Bushido code book that didn't seem to have been written by a white guy and there we have it. I also steered clear of Bushido, Soul of the Samurai by Nitobe Anazo, which is the first book written about the Bushido Code in 1899 because I knew Usagi Yojimbo was going to be a lot of reading. Sure. And I needed a self-help book, not unlike Jason's trusty spear. I needed something straight (laughs) and to the point. Lori, you found that very funny. That That tickled you. (laughs) Lori Sugawa Whaley is a third-generation Japanese-American who is a direct descendant of samurai, but did not get into the study of the Bushido until adulthood. She is a baby boomer born shortly after World War II and grew up on a farm in Washington State. As a child, her Japanese-ness was a source of ridicule. As we know, children are terrible, and they teased her for being different and blamed her for the attack on Pearl Harbor. Hmm. So she was conditioned at a young age to detach from her Japanese heritage. Hmm. It wasn't until after she had graduated from Portland State University in 1978 that her fascination and curiosity for her heritage was ignited. She was working as an assistant curator to renowned Jewish-American designer Sarah Little Turnbow at the Tacoma Art Museum. She had been charged with cataloging artifacts, many of which were Japanese. In the context of a museum, she began to see her ancestral past as unique, precious, and something to be revered and studied. She went to Japan for the first time in 1982 to find her past, and what she found was her purpose in life— learning all she can about her ancestral home. 
That is not where her interest in the Bushido Code began, however. Mm. Her interest in the Bushido Code specifically was born in the same place our interest in the Bushido Code began, the movie theater. Can you guess which movie inspired her? Uh, I'll give you a clue. It was 2003. 2003. I was going to say, I thought you were going to be like, it's a Kurosawa movie or something like that. Yeah, um, no. 2003, 2003, 2003, 2003. Um, I mean, like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon came out in that time, but that's not Bushido. Uh, um, is it The Last Samurai? 100%. That Tom oh. Cruise movie. Whoa. That's fascinating. I thought that was interesting, too, because to me, that's a, like a very middle of the road Kind of uh, Tom Cruise vehicle. I think you're being kind on <laughs> the road. I think that's a bad movie. But that being said, like, you never know where you're, like, I just find it fun. Like, where does inspiration come from? Inspiration comes from everything. Even yeah, The mean, Last Samurai. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, like, if you look at, like, where did my original uh, fascination with samurais come from? It came from Star Wars, right? Because any kid who starts obsessing over Star Wars then goes like, oh, he was inspired by the Hidden Fortress? And you watch the Hidden Fortress, and suddenly you're watching Seven Samurai, and Yojimbo, and Sanjuro, and Ron, and all that stuff. So you, you never know where things are getting sparked. But uh, The Last Samurai, I mean, I don't know. I need to revisit that. That film. It's been a long time. Maybe we should. Not liking it. But yeah, okay, I'm down to watch <laughs> it. Lori Sugawa Whaley is now a life coach and keynote speaker who teaches the principles of the Bushido Code to help people tap into what she refers to as their soul purpose, like S-O-U-L mm, yeah, purpose, it. find their true leadership potential, and live powerful lives. Her book, Let the Samurai Be Your Guide, The Seven Bushido Pathways of Personal Success, was published this year from Tuttle Publishing, and it's intended to help us apply this centuries-old code of conduct to our present-day lives so we can get in touch with our sole purpose. I appreciate that it's from 2020. I, like, I don't think we've ever done a relationship book from the year in which we're recording, so that's kind of cool. That's not true because I think our last book was from 2020. Oh, really? Yeah, I have the book right here. Uh, the Enneagram in Love? Yeah. It is interesting that, like, I don't go looking for books from 2020, but two books in a row, I was like, do you know what's on my mind? The Enneagram. Guess what came out? A book on the Enneagram. I just, I, I appreciate a modern POV. That's all. That's cool. All right, cool. Since this is our first episode with Lori Sugawa Whaley, we're going to focus on the preface and introduction sections of the book. In the preface, Whaley goes into how she thinks the ancient ways of the samurai could help improve modern-day living. Here is a quote. Not long ago, there was a time where your word was your bond, and it was safe to leave your doors unlocked because you knew your neighbors. In our modern society, it would seem that the distinction between right and wrong gave way to situational ethics. The term honest business dealing is considered almost an oxymoron. Have we succumbed to mediocrity? Are there leaders today worth following? I don't know, Lori. Are there? I'm not sure right now if Whaley is making an argument for moral absolutism, and I am triggered by boomers who yearn for the good old days, but I do see where she's coming from with the idea that particularly in business and politics, we presume and tolerate that those who have won capitalism by gaining the most money and power have done so by cheating, and we just live with it. Yeah, okay. The term Bushido means way of the warrior, and it was a code of chivalry developed for the samurai of feudal Japan. And the way Whaley describes it, it emphasized courage, loyalty, and the idea of death before dishonor. 
I was a little wary of the death before dishonor idea. I personally think the best way to honor life is to sustain it for as long as possible in most cases. And I was afraid of dipping my toe into a worldview that considered life cheap. We do see examples in Usagi where people take their own lives, which I know is triggering for some listeners. In one of the preface issues of Grass Cutter, we hear of soldiers and royals taking their own lives rather than being captured or killed by the enemy. We also see Usagi mow through a bunch of nameless samurai. And I'm specifically thinking of one panel where, uh, like, Usagi is being ambushed by a whole bunch of samurai, and he's actively, like, chopping someone's head clear in half and wondering to himself, like, I wonder what this is all about. I mean, yeah, but, like, at least it's no different than when you watch, like, the man with no name, Clint Eastwood, blast through a bunch of dudes or die hard and John McClane, like, mows through a guy uh, and obliterates his kneecaps. I mean, it, it... That's part of the fiction. Like you're watching a samurai film or reading a samurai comic. People are going to get chopped in half. Yeah. And this is certainly not the first time we've encountered violence in our comics, though. I would argue that in our more superhero-y superhero comics, violence and death is generally considered more of a last resort where we get like super mad when Superman snaps Zod's neck. Those stories are told through a very Western lens. Mm, Yes. And, you know, samurai stories are uh, through a Japanese lens and there's a cultural difference. And you're talking about honor killings. I mean, it's it's hard maybe for a Westerner to understand, uh, you know, something like seppuku, but like you know, you, we have to free ourselves of the judgment of it. It is just a part of culture and it's certainly a part of samurai lore. Yeah. Yeah. And I've read ahead in the book and that is not what Whaley is touting exactly. The idea that your life is less valuable than your honor. And, and I totally agree with you. I think we're just going to have to like, to a certain degree, accept that there are going to be certain cultural differences And it's never our place to put a value judgment on that. Yeah. How's that for your situational ethics? Very very good, Lisa. (laughs) Very good. We're just doing the best we can. The way this book is set up, each of the first seven chapters covers one of the Bushido Code principles. And then she includes an example of a person who lived by that principle. The seven Bushido principles are courage, integrity, benevolence, respect, honesty, honor, and loyalty. The eighth chapter is about the Japanese principle ganbaru, which Whaley loosely translates as going for broke. The idea of committing yourself to something completely and exerting all of your effort, though she says it's less of an action and more of a state of mind. Whaley asserts that as long as you live by the principles of the Bushido code and make the right choices, your destiny or your soul purpose will unveil itself to you. It's like Usagi finding the grass cutter sword. He wasn't looking for it like Lord Kotetsu. He wasn't going to try and gain anything for himself from it like the bounty hunter Genosuke. But as soon as he picked up that sword, his adherence to his principles made his hands the right hands. Mm, Yeah. A samurai sword is considered the soul of a samurai, and for Whaley, the forging process of that sword is a metaphor for a life lived by the Bushido Code. 
In order to make a sword, the metal has to be repeatedly fired, folded, and hammered. But instead of destroying the metal, it is made strong, durable, flexible, and beautiful. The challenges of life are not seen as a convergence of unfortunate coincidences, but as tests of character that, if overcame, will ultimately shape you into a better, stronger person. That is what I want to consider as we're witnessing the actions and choices of Usagi and Lady Tomo. The idea that your destiny is not an open world of possibilities, but an existing truth that by making right choices, you are honing in on. Another thing to consider when you're thinking about their individual destinies is their contrasting statuses as samurai. Lady Tomo is employed and is the bodyguard of Lord Noriyuki, and there she will stay until he either dies or dismisses her in honor. So her destiny is tied to Lord Noriyuki. Usagi is a ronin. He is freelance. His master has already died, and so he's just like this wandering agent of goodness, so who knows what his destiny is? He goes gig to gig. That's right. Then we also have General Akita, who has his own set of circumstances that I am dying to get into. Love Akita. But we can't jump into grass cutter just yet, Lisa, because we have now arrived at our words of affirmation. Affirmation! So as we mentioned at the top of the show, we launched a Patreon and we got a bunch of patrons, 15 in fact, and we're going to deliver words of affirmation to each and every one of them using a very official and handy dandy mindfulness app. Lisa, why don't you kick it off with our very first patron? Here we go. We're actually starting with your dad. Oh, hi, dad. Greg Gullickson, people look up to you and know your worth. You are admired. Denise Gullickson, you embrace today and strengthen your heart and clarity in your mind. Hi, Mom. ZL, you are at peace with all that has happened, all that is happening, and all that will happen. Rebecca Pierce, you believe in the person you're becoming. Anthony Latch, you are free to choose how you experience your experiences. Sean Eastridge, you are not a mistake, and you accept yourself unconditionally, Sean. Accept yourself! Arcanity, positivity is a choice, and you're a positive role model. Jesse Tapia II, you're out there creating your life one second, one day at a time. Jason Ayers, your ability to conquer challenges is limitless, and your potential to succeed is infinite. Jackie, a.k.a. Apple J, your efforts are being supported by the universe. Your dreams manifest into reality before your eyes. Gabriel Rusin, you are superior to negative thoughts and low actions. Joe Rankley, today you're brimming with energy and overflowing with joy. Max, your obstacles are moving out of your way. Your path is carved toward greatness. William Hauk, you have been given endless talents, which you'll begin to utilize today. Guido, you are a river of compassion. You wash away anger and replace it with love. You know what's so funny is that, like, I started off thinking that this was just going to be something sort of silly and fun to do for our patrons. But actually saying those words of affirmation for these people who have contributed to our show, our community 
honestly makes me feel like warm and fuzzy inside. Affirmations work. Yeah. We have to remember that one of the ways we can influence the alchemy of our brains is with language. That's one of our superpowers as human beings. So by putting positive words in your mind, you you will change the chemistry of your mind. Yes. That's I, I believe fully in affirmations. I think that they're wonderful. And if you were listening to this and you one of these affirmations really resonated with you, take it with you. Repeat it to yourself and, and take control of your thoughts. And if it didn't, try repeating it with some sincerity. Like, you know, for me, sometimes I feel like it's very easy for my own brain to scoff at this stuff. And what this podcast has been over the last two years, all near, nearly two years, has been like... Uh, forcing me to become more authentic and sincere. And uh, man, it makes me feel pretty darn good. And I love doing this and I want to keep doing this. So thank you to our patrons. I hope you enjoyed your words of affirmation. Those that aren't our patrons, I hope you got something from these affirmations as well. But let's get on to the comic. Usagi Ojimbo, Book 12, Grass Cutter, which reprints issues 13 through 22 of the third volume of the Usagi Ojimbo series, part of the early Dark Horse Comics years, published between August of 1997 and July of 1998. It's a rare comic where one person is the sole creator behind every inch of every panel. Stan Sakai wrote, drew, inked, and lettered the whole darn thing. I think the only other comic we've covered like that on this podcast is Tilly Walden's On a Sunbeam. I love that. It's truly special. It's very, very special. So here's the plot of Grasscutter taken right off the back of the book. Forged in heaven, it is called Kusanagi, the Grasscutter, the lost sword of the gods. This legendary blade could potentially tip the scales of power for the shadowy conspiracy of eight, in their quest to overthrow the shogunate and reinstate the emperor. With the help of a witch and the souls of dead warriors, they plan to recover the lost sword and bring the shogun down. But when the fates place the grass cutter in the hands of a masterless samurai, Usagi Ojimbo, the ronin rabbit becomes the focus of a deadly struggle for possession of the dread blade. And this crisis pales beside the dark possibilities should the sword come to the demonic warrior, Jai. Grasscutter is Stan Sakai's longest and most ambitious Usagi tale to date, a sweeping epic showcasing one of the comic's most individual artistic voices at the peak of his creative skills. Pretty good summary, Dark Horse Comics. Very nice. You pronounce it Jai? I say J. Uh, it, I think it is probably Jay. I'm going to pronounce things in a variety of ways I over like the course that. of this episode. No, that's, that's fun. <laughs> you know, Jay... San, right? Like Jason. That's a, um, a reference to Jason from Friday the 13th. You told me this off mic and uh, I didn't believe you. I'm like, that's just a coincidence that his name is Jay and he happens to kill a bunch of people because the, I feel like the murdering is like where the... Uh where where the uh, comparison ends. Yeah. But then you went on Wikipedia, and that is, I guess, the case. Well, I went on to Usagi Ojimbo's fandom Wikipedia, and that's what they said. I had never heard this before, um, but I now that I've heard it, I can't not unhear it, and I love it, and I really 
love the image of Stan Sakai working his way through the Friday the 13th movies, <laughs> which is something that Lisa and I are doing right now as we get closer and closer to Halloween. Last night, we watched part two. Which I had never seen before. And it's pretty good. Not as good as part one, I think. And nor as good as anything in Usagi Ojimbo. So oh, yeah. <laughs> the idea that Friday the 13th touches Usagi in any way is fascinating and delightful. Yeah. Okay, so as we've already stated, there are four prologues to Grasscutter, and I don't think we need to necessarily go too in-depth into everything that goes down in those four prologues. They give you a lot of context for what happens in the main storyline, and it is incredibly interesting and uh, sparks a lot of curiosity regarding Japanese folklore and mythology that, you know— Obviously, Stan Sakai is a master of. And what I also appreciate about Stan Sakai is that every trade paperback comes with these massive story notes. So if you think you've already been given this giant dump of uh, information, there's a lot more even behind how he presents it. And he does make a lot of artistic choices to bend the story and the history to Usagi's narrative. Uh, but but here's here's basically what goes down in the first three prologues. Grasscutter was, and again, I forgive me for my mispronunciations. I'm trying. I'm going to get better. But you know, I'm not Japanese. I think the most important thing is consistency. We'll Con- we'll try to be I'm consistent. Trying. I'm trying, Lisa. <laughs> uh, Grasscutter was originally Murakumo no Suruji, the Sword of the Village of the Clustering Clouds, which Susano, who is a kami of the seaplane, a deity of the seaplane, uh, gave to Amaterasu, uh, the female kami of the sun, as penance for an insult that got him kicked out of heaven. He found the sword inside one of the tails of the eight-headed serpent that he slain to save slash marry the eighth and final daughter of Ashi no Zuchi, who was a kami of the mountains, yes. right? Um, the sword was given to Yamato Daki, the son of Emperor Kaiko, by his aunt Yamato Hime at the temple of Amaterasu. Amaterasu. I'm trying. To quell the Yamashi. Uh, the sword saved Yamato Hime when the hunting party he is with turned on him, fires flaming arrows towards his general direction, causing the grass around him to turn ablaze. He takes out the blade, starts chopping up the grass because he he knows that's the fuel for the fire and he needs a clearer path. But when he's chopping the grass, he notices that the blade is stirring the wind and causing the fire to change direction. And that's why the blade is forever called grass cutter from that point forward. I think the most important thing, besides the origin of the grass cutter from these first three prologues, is that the world is teeming with these kami, with these deities. And um, with that polytheistic point of view, it, it, it helps a person account for some of the chaos in the universe because mm-hmm. it gives you the relief of going like, Things are not entirely in my control. Mm-hmm. There are other things controlling reality. Yeah, there's that, forces at work. But it also accounts for when you feel like you're doing all of the right things, perhaps to please one specific deity, another outcome can still happen because there is this contrasting entity who wants the opposite thing to happen. Yeah. Which I feel like in monotheism, it, it doesn't account for bad things still happening because you go like, well, um, there is one God. Why is there hunger in the universe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a war in heaven. There's a, there's wars between Kami. There's plots and schemes and you're stuck in the middle. And Kami are just like more powerful 
people. They are fallible. They make mistakes. They offend each other. And, And all of this is happening around us, and sometimes we are just kind of... Um, pawns in their scheme. And I think that sets up Usagi's role as a wandering ronin, right? You know, he is a cog in these stories. And he is content to be so. In prologue four, we get to witness the battle of Dano no Ura, which is how the grass cutter sword went to the bottom of the sea. Mm. So there are two opposing political factions in the 12th century. There are the Haiki, which descended from the emperor's court, and there are the Genji, which descended from a samurai class. At this point, the Genji have taken over the capital, and the boy emperor, who is just eight years old, and his family have been moved on to this small ship uh, that is kind of a decoy because they think that the Genji will presume that they put all put the emperor's family on the biggest ship, And so what they're hoping happens is that the Genji attack the biggest ship and the emperor is able to get away. The problem is the Genji are way more militarily equipped than the Haiki who have as their general this kind of perhaps inbred dopey Incompetent dude. Yeah. So... um, the emperor's mother, who is having trouble sleeping, goes up to the to to look at the sky to look for signs, and the grandmother is also awake. So when the mother looks up into the sky, she goes like, "The sky looks nice and clear. This must be a good sign." And the grandmother goes like, "Is this a good sign for our side, or is this a good sign for the?" other side. So you get this sense of them looking for like um, ways that the circumstances can be out of their control. Are the kami siding with us or are they siding against us? Glass half full, glass half empty. Exactly. And then we have kind of a parallel scene where the general of the Haiki are also out there looking for signs and he sees the Genji approaching and then he sees over them a big white um, cloud that's in the shape of the banner. So he goes to his sacred advisor and he goes, hey, look, that's a big white banner above the other side. That's got to be a good sign for us. And the spiritual advisor goes like, is that a good sign for us or is that a good sign for the other side? And then we go like, he goes like, well, we have to then look for another sign. And so he's, uh, the spiritual advisor goes like, oh, look, there are dolphins. Dolphins are generally a good sign, but let's keep an eye on them because if they go underneath our ship, that's going to be a good sign for the other side. And so inevitably the dolphin dive underneath their ship and they begin to panic. Little do they know there is actually, they have a spy that's on their side that has told the Genji what's up. So they know exactly where the boy emperor is, as well as the three treasures, which includes the the grass cutter. Um, And the Genji inevitably win. But before they can uh, take the the three treasures, the grandmother, um, the mother, and um, with the boy emperor all jump into the ocean with the three treasures. Two of them are recovered, but the grass cutter is still under the water. What I think is important about uh, this story is the idea of 
them thinking of their destiny as something outside of themselves and kind of scrounging for these signs and trying to interpret these outside signs rather than looking inside themselves for what is the right thing to do in this particular situation. That being said, I don't think there was a circumstance where the Heike were going to win this particular battle. They were outnumbered and outclassed by a wide margin. Yeah, but that theme of, you know, trying to interpret what the gods want versus what I should be doing with what I am given runs throughout Usagi Yojimbo. And I and I think that's what sets Usagi apart from other characters is that he acknowledges that there is a game being played that he cannot see, but he only can do what he can do on the path that he is on. And that confidence of I will make the right choices given the information that I am presented is what is so darn appealing about Miyamoto Usagi. Yeah, and that idea of every hardship I encounter is a test of my character. Yeah, he's not making excuses. No. Yeah, he's he's doing his what he's got to do. That's right. And he has the training and the skill to do them. Mm. Now, when the proper grass cutter storyline kicks off, we still don't pick up with Miyamoto Usagi. We pick up with Jay, uh, the nemesis of Miyamoto Usagi. I mean, he is as close to a Doctor Doom at this point as Usagi has. He's the arch nemesis of the book. And he's a very mysterious character. He refers to himself as the Blade of the Gods. Um, But we... I don't think we have been given his origin at this point. I can't exactly remember when the storyline, the darkness and the soul uh, happens, if it's before Grasscutter or after Grasscutter. But we do learn that Jay's first host body was a priest uh, who was a former samurai named Jizanobu. And uh, he basically traded his body and his soul for this demonic possession so that he could cure this child of an inexplicable disease. And when Jay first took possession of his body, Jay then went and slaughtered his entire temple. Uh, What's interesting about Jay is that he believes he is slaying evil, and he has deemed Miyamoto Usagi to be evil, and his purpose is to eradicate that evil. But What's his perspective? His point of view is clearly not that of Miyamoto Usagi's or the reader's point of view. So I find that to be uh, an interesting contradiction, an interesting struggle to understand his character uh, and his motivations. There are a couple of instances in this book in particular where um, you get to see that good and evil is just a matter of perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when we first see Jay in Grasscutter, he's traveling with Keiko, this young girl who he saved after her grandfather was murdered by a bunch of uh, bandits. And, you know, when he when he killed those bandits, he started a fire and he burned down her home uh, and he left the girl alone. But then Keiko traveled behind him and he just sort of accepted her into his you know, journey, his quest, and they become this little duo. And that's sort of an interesting dynamic. You know, here is this child of innocence hanging out with this demon. And the first thing we see him do in this book is slaughter an entire procession of samurai with very little effort. And there's something about 
the way I respond to Jay's actions, because seeing him take down these samurai, uh, I, you know, I, as an American, as a, a person with Western sensibilities, I love to see a cocky dude uh, get his face smashed into the sand, <laughs> right? There's just something joyous about seeing somebody who thinks they're the greatest uh, be taken down a peg or two. And that's what Jay does. He takes people down a peg or two. So many pegs, like, until they're, like, dead. Yeah, yeah, so many pegs, so many pegs. But because he has deemed Usagi as evil. Well, I'm team Usagi. So you can never uh, really enjoy when Jay takes down some people a peg or two either. Yeah. Well, there's something inherently volatile of the idea of the gift of discernment. Mm. Like I have this ability to look at someone and discern if they're good or evil. Like that's an impossibility to be able to look at someone and know know their insides. So um, I don't think that in every case, Jay is necessarily good or evil, but I think that the way that he approaches others is inherently bad. Miyamoto Usagi does not appear in Grasscutter until page 70. So again, calling Grasscutter like the ultimate Usagi Yojimbo comic is a little odd because of that fact. And so if this is your first time reading it, you're like, well, where is the rabbit Ronin? <laughs> well, he's here. He's on page 70. And he is standing on Shimonoseki Strait, which is where the Battle of Dan no Ura took place. And he is imagining like what went down those hundreds of years ago. And he's thinking about Grasscutter cutter and how it's somewhere on the bottom of the ocean, but he's never going to see it. He's never going to know where it went. It's a mystery for the ages. Uh, but you know what? I'm hanging out and I'm not too far from the Gaishu clan, which is where Lady Tomo Ame works as a bodyguard for Lord Noriyuki. And since I'm this close, I may as well go hang out with her. But of course, when he makes a decision, uh, there is this huge earthquake yeah. that then sends him in another direction. So there's this earthquake. And so he goes, well, I'm a samurai. I should probably investigate, go to the nearest town and see if anybody is in trouble. Yeah, he, ro he rolls with the punches. Uh, what I do think is important here is addressing that thought of Lady uh, Tomo. Tomo and Osagi are supposed to be our couple for this podcast, and yet this is the closest we get to see them in this book as on the same panel. But it's incredibly important because she is never that far from his mind. And, you know, what has their relationship been before this moment? They've had several encounters. Um, they've, they've, they've dueled a couple times. Like I said, they always come to a, a draw when they duel. There is this unrequited romance or chemistry. There's something between them, but because of who they are and the positions that they hold, they can never be an item. These star-crossed romances are certainly a trope in all kinds of literature, but it's absolutely a kink of samurai fiction mm -hmm. and samurai cinema. And it's something that you see over and over and over again. And uh, that's so that's like that's the role that Tomo fills within the Usagi storyline. Yeah, I guess she represents what Usagi's heart would want if he wasn't a samurai and always doing the righteous thing, perhaps. And if life and the kami had you know, gone a different way for him. The earth literally moves him away <laughs> from his heart's desire. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so he goes off to deal with the repercussions of that earthquake. 
Meanwhile, across the way, Lord Nuriyuki feels the earthquake and he's a little shaken by it. But his servant says there's no damage here, no casualties, no big deal. And that does not stop him from wanting to go visit the Shogun because he's heard that the Shogun is going to abdicate to his son and he wants to throw support to the Shogun. Uh, Lady Tomo, a little concerned about that. But as a bodyguard, it's not really her place to question her lord. He does wonder aloud, like, why would the Shogun want to abdicate his throne, considering it had just been two years since he got it in the first place? Um, And Lady Tomo is like, well, it's to establish heredity. So they're trying to turn themselves into the Haike and establish, like, okay, well, now it's a birthright of the son of the Shogun to then become the Shogun. So the Genji clan is trying to turn themselves into more like a Haike royal family line. It's important to note that uh, the Gaishu clan comes from the emperor's side, the royal side, not the samurai class. This is even more important when General Aikida is introduced into the story because he's a character who betrayed the Gaishu clan because of their uh, transition with the shogun. When I was reading this through for the first time, I kept asking Brad, like, who are the good guys and yeah. who are the bad guys? Right. Are the Haiki the good guys and the Genji the bad guys? And uh, I came to the conclusion, and let me know if you think this is right, um, that there aren't really, one side isn't good and one side is bad. There are just people who are content with the mo- amount of power they have, like Lord Noriyuki, where he knows that if he doesn't honor the shogunate, there's going to be war. Yeah, it's not as simple as the empire versus the rebellion, right? This ain't Star Wars. There's just people who want more power and are willing to fight for it. And there are people who are content with the amount of power that they have. And then there's all the people stuck in the middle. Or more... Considering this is feudal, like they're stuck underneath. Yeah, on where the bottom, like the, yeah. the top two levels of people, because the samurai started like the word samurai actually means the one who serves. They started as the servants, and but when the haiki started creating more and more little feudal like feudal lands, they needed to hire more samurai, and the way that they paid their samurai was by giving them land. And so eventually the samurai on their own needed their own samurai to protect their land, but they also gained more power. This is something that I learned from the Bushido Code book. So um, so it was nice to have that kind of historical perspective as well on this. And that becomes so clear when Usagi visits that village and helps that one little family. And after, you know, they've, they've recovered the property, the building, they go and have lunch together or dinner together. And they start talking about the legend of the grass cutter sword. And Usagi asks the father, what would you do if you found it? And the father says, well, I would sell it to the highest bidder, of course, because that dude needs money. That dude needs to uh, have enough wealth to keep his children fed. And that's just a level of uh, struggle that the Noriyukis of this world don't understand and will never understand. But characters like General Aikida and Usagi, who have made certain choices that have put them on uh, a wanderer's path or the path of a farmer, they they have a they they are given a larger worldview and. 
I, honestly, it's the worldview of the audience as well. Because we're following Usagi, we see all the sides of this conflict and all the types of people who inhabit these worlds. And it's not so much about you know the the good and the bad the you know the royal class and the samurai class it's about the good and the bad of each individual within mm. each team now in contrast to lord noriyuki who is content with his level of power and he feels a certain amount of responsibility to those he has power over we have lord kotetsu his mm. who is one of the conspiracy of eight and he has a plan to not only find the grass cutter so that he can return the power to the Heike. He also plans to um, find the child Lord and kind of be the puppet master. So he will be the true power and the true mind behind the Heike. So he's a guy who wants more power for himself. So he's uh, found this witch named Ryoku who plans to find the grass cutter by um, magically manipulating all of these crabs that live at the bottom of the ocean that supposedly bear the spirits and the faces of the Haiki samurai from the Battle of Dano no Ura. They're going to uncover the grass cutter sword, give it to Ryoko, who's going to give it to Lord Kotetsu, who's going to give it to the child emperor, and it's all to make it look like the gods are on the side of the Heike because they've restored the three treasures. Whew, that was a lot. <laughs> but they put this plan in motion. The crabs do uncover the grass cutter, but it's not found by right. Ryoko's men. It's found by Usagi, who's just wandering around doing the Ronin thing. So we have Lord Kotetsu, who is trying to gain power by controlling the outsides of things, creating these signs of God. But the power falls into the hands of Usagi, who is a samurai who doesn't try to control the outside circumstances, but instead tries to control his insides by always following his principles and doing the right thing. So ultimately what is being said, that the gods reward the person who is uh, working on the interior, whose struggle is self, not others, not the outside world. I think it's a matter of trust. The gods trust someone like Usagi. They don't trust a Lord Kotetsu. That being said, Lisa, there's also a bunch of demons who are uh, manipulating Jay and want Jay to have the sword. Oh, that's true. My whole thesis falls apart. <laughs> <laughs> but demons are definitely They're bad. different. They're bad, bad. They're different than Kami. Yeah, but, I mean, if you look back at those prologues, we, we've already talked about how, the you know, the Kami, the gods, the demons, they, you know, they have their own morality, their own struggles. So they're really no different than us, the people of the Earth. When we get to the climax of this story, there are two endings. There is the ending of the grass cutter, but there is also the ending for Jay and for the demons inside of Jay. So like there isn't like a happy ending, like good defeats evil. There's two endings where the grass cutter falls into the right hands, but also this bunch of demons have their own ending. The ending is not an ending. Everything just keeps on keeping on. For Usagi, he becomes aware of this larger story being told, the, the story of the gods, when he is attacked by Ryoku's samurai. And he goes, huh, uh, so many people want to kill me for this thing. Maybe it is actually the fabled grass cutter blade. 
now I really have to figure out what to do with this thing. Now Lord Kotetsu and Ryoko know that some long-eared samurai has taken the grass cutter. So they start looking for him in the immediate area, which takes them to the fisherman's village. And they yeah. ask, like, hey, has anybody seen this long-eared samurai? And the fisherman, whose child was saved by Usagi, was like, I saw a long-eared samurai. Is there some kind of reward for him or something? So that fisherman puts them on Usagi's trail saying that he was going to go see Lord Noriyuki and Kotetsu's like he's got the grass cutter and now he's going to take it to Lord Noriyuki who's going to give it to the Shogun and everything is ruined and so they go like well we don't want anybody to know that we are looking for Usagi so we're just going to kill this entire fisherman's village so now like Usagi went out of his way to save this fisherman's family but by visiting that village, he essentially got that entire village killed from one perspective. But, but right, but that, that's not Usagi's fault necessarily if the fisherman had just kept, kept his, his mouth mum. shut. Yeah. That's, that's right. So the fisherman— And his—which you could call greed, yeah. but also he needs to feed his family, and a reward would go a long way to feeding his family. But he did something to increase his own power— um, by getting more money, and in doing so, got him and his entire village killed. Yeah, but again, like, I would question, is that increasing his power or his survival? And, like, as a reader, can we judge him positively or negatively? To me, that's a moot point, because the story has already judged him for what yeah. he's done. It's punished him. He's dead. And so is his wife and child and everybody he knows. Fair enough. And, you know, now Usagi has uh, a bunch more samurai on his tail. He cuts his way through a whole swath of them. And after he eradicates that next batch, he starts to really consider the sword in his hands, grass cutter. And you start to realize that he wishes this sword had never fallen into his possession. But wishing matters not. Now that he has it, he has the country's destiny on his shoulders, and that is terrifying. And maybe that is uh, a position that he would not have elected to take, but it, it, he doesn't have any options now. He really has to get this sword to the right people. He's not exactly sure who that is, but he can't let it fall into the hands of others. And that becomes even more difficult when Ryoko's familiar, Katana Mono, uh, jumps from the bushes and grabs the sword right out of Usagi's hands. Practically killing him. In the meantime, we got to get back to Lady Tomo because she's gone with Lord Noriyuki on this quest to go to Edo. Yeah. But then Lord Noriyuki's Minister of Protocol, who has coincidentally made all of the travel plans, has... <laughs> turned on him and there's this huge ambush lord noriyuki is injured and him and lady tomo are on the run and they run to this small farmhouse yeah. where there is a kind family who takes them in and starts taking care of his wounds yeah but look at general aikida's face the farmer he looks so hard and so mad from panel one and tomo is skeptical of his farmerness right from the jump she's like you don't look like a farmer you don't act like a farmer you have these swords which is not very farmerly and lord noriyuki is like 
what? You know, you can just find a sword. Anybody well, can have a sword. He's curious about it, but he is accepting and he finds it kind of exciting. Like there is a mystery here and I like it. Whereas Tomo's response to that is there's a mystery here and I don't like it. I think it's important to point out that before I got to this issue, I had no idea that Lord Noriyuki was a child. Oh, really? Yeah, because, I mean, he just looks like a panda bear. Yeah. Yeah, know. he's short. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, maybe that's just a panda bear thing. People are sometimes <laughs> short. and um, But it's the wife of General Akita, who just goes by Ike, because he's just a farmer right now. Um, when she goes, like, oh, he's not that much older than our son. Our son is, like, eight. And I was like, what? I had no <laughs> idea. Because he just talks like everybody else. Yeah, he talks yeah, yeah. on the same. He doesn't have a He's like that kid from Jerry Maguire. He's got an adult's intelligence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But to me, everybody in this story speaks more or less the same way. Mm, um, interesting. They might have different motivations. And that's like the distinguishing factor in the way that they speak. Like, Genosuke, he is motivated by um, getting, he's a bounty hunter. He's motivated by getting money. We haven't even talked about it. I know. There's so much <laughs> in this book. But my point is everybody might talk about different things, but everybody more or less has the same manner of speech. It doesn't matter if you're like a peasant or you're a child king, you're going to say things the same way. That's interesting. I don't, I mean, I certainly did not pick up on that, but I kind of understand what you're saying there. And it's certainly something that I will be looking at more closely as we continue this reread or as I continue my reread. But the important thing is that Lord Noriki is a child. Yes. And so his his perspective is not only limited by him being a lord, it's also limited by him not having a lot of experiences. And that's why he has excitement when he, there's this mystery of General Aikida at night. Noriyuki can go to sleep pretty easily, uh, but Tomo is a little more on edge. While Noriyuki is sleeping, General Aikida is standing over the child and is considering strangling him. He does pause. He decides not to do it there in his home. And because he has the patience of a spider, he can wait. He will wait for the opportunity to present itself. But Tomo on edge, wakes up, sees Aikida over Noriyuki, puts a blade to Aikida's neck. He goes like, yo, what are you doing? And that's pretty much their entire dynamic as they start this journey together to get the injured Lord Noriyuki all the way to the shogunate. And General Aikida and his, with his son Motokazu have agreed to show them the way that's not the main road so that they are not discovered Exposed, yeah. yeah general akita having lord noriyuki in his hands is not unlike usagi with the grass cutter mm. because he can serve his own revenge mm. and his own ego by murdering lord noriyuki or he can judge the um, circumstances as they come and follow his conscience and what he feels is actually right. Yeah, yeah. And it's a slow process, but he starts to let go of his revenge the further he goes on this journey with Noriyuki and Tomo. And as the circumstances unfold, his perspective 
does begin to change. Right. And, I, and I'm sure he's really grateful eventually that he did not murder Lord Noriyuki on that night. We also have to note that his son is with him now. Yeah, that's true. Right? And so the son observing all of this adds this extra layer of um, uh, responsibility to Aikida. He has this choice of... Can I? Should I be the man I used to be, General Aikida, or sh- should I continue to be the man that my son perceives me to be? Cut back to Usagi, and he is, you know, extremely injured after his confrontation with the familiar, uh, and he is attacked once again by a group of samurai. He's now on the brink of death, like he is going to die, and he is saved in the nick of time by Genosuke, the other uh, Ronin bounty hunter character. What I love about Genosuke is he's truly the Toshiro Mifune of Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo in the Usagi Yojimbo context, where Miyamoto is Miyamoto Musashi, Genosuke is Toshiro Mifune in Yojimbo. And everything he does is like, yeah, but is there money in it? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's much more self-serving than Usagi. But he's willing to help Usagi. Usagi fills him in about the grass cutter. Yeah, they're and, buds. Yeah, and he goes, well, it sounds like maybe that this is there, there might be money in this. And Genosuke is trying to get to the bottom of like, I understand that you're getting the grass cutter, but why are you getting it if you're not just going to sell it? And... Usagi is actually disgusted by his friend, and he goes like, if heaven delivered you the truth, would you spread its gospel? And Genosuke is like, well, all you're going to do is start a civil war anyway. And Usagi's like, I'm not going to let this thing fall into the wrong hands, and I'm not going to let this be used as a political weapon. And Genosuke is like, well, that's impossible, so what now? And so I think this reiterates the moral quandary that Usagi is in. He has this item of profound importance and he doesn't know what to do with it, but he knows that it's whatever he does is going to be catastrophic, apocalyptic. Yeah. Like whoever gets the sword, people are going to die as a result. So So how how do you stop that? Yeah. How can I both have the sword and not have the sword. Well, they definitely don't have the sword now. Uh, Katana Mono has it, and Katana Mono is, you know, is feeling the effect of the sword, and he's really excited about the sword. Uh, but guess who comes a knocking? Jay, and Jay and Katana Nomo have a little conflict, and Jay kills Katana Mono and gets Grass Cutter. This is a worst case scenario, but. What's fascinating about this is that when Jay goes to consecrate the blade and turn it into a black sword, he cannot. It resists his demonic touch. So the question is, why is the sword resisting him? Because the entire reason Jay goes to Katana Mono in the first place is because he hears the sword calling him. Mm -hmm. So the sword calls him. He gets the sword in his hands. But when he goes to consecrate it for the demons... It can't be consecrated. So that scene ends with him going like, oh, well, the sword, it still cuts as good as any sword. And he asks the sword to then show him the way. So to me, this is in service to that second ending I was alluding to before, where 
The sword is just a means to get Usagi and Jay in the same place so that Usagi has motivation to defeat Jay. And now the demons that are inside of Jay can go into a new host, which is Inazuma, who's another bounty hunter that we haven't even talked about. (laughs) Right, right, right. So what you're saying is that the sword calling Jay... The sword's just using Jay as a delivery system, as like transportation. Exactly. It's like um like a parasite. Yeah. Where huh. it's like, okay, I've infected this this host long enough. I need a way to find another word worthy host, which is this half-dead bounty hunter that Jay has put in the hands of this this nearby temple because she had wounds from like another scuffle. But all that is to say is that there are two parallel stories going on right now that intersect with this one conflict so that there is a, you know, quote, good ending where the grass cutter is back in the hands of Usagi, who can then figure out a way to both have the sword and not have the sword. And the story of Jay, the demons inside Jay, getting a new host, which is the, like, quote-unquote, bad ending. So that is, like, the darkness and the light. Yeah, and speaking of battles between the light side and the dark side, that conflict is happening within Aikida as he takes Noriyuki and Tomo up the mountain pass and across a bridge. And it's not just, like, any bridge. It's like a Temple of Doom bridge. It's an extremely rickety bridge. Uh, But before they can even, like, put their foot on it, they're confronted by Arimura's samurai. And uh, Aikida is called out for being Aikida. Arimura recognizes him. And when he calls out Aikida, this is the first time that Noriyuki and Tomo become truly aware of who and what he was before a farmer. And Noriyuki knows him and goes like, oh, That dude betrayed my dad. And now Tomo has to make the decision, okay, um, what am I going to do? Now I'm confronted by all my enemies. But when he is recognized, General Ikeda doesn't trust Arimura. Because he goes like, well, who's pulling your strings? Because you're a dum-dum and you're not smart enough to pull this on your own. And so Tomo and Aikida fight against the samurai uh, because there is no other option. Tomo has to trust Aikida and Aikida tells his son Motokazu to take Noriyuki across the bridge while they hold back the army. But as they're running across the bridge, Motokazu steps on a bad slat, falls through the bridge, but thankfully Lord Noriyuki has quick reflexes, catches the kid, and General Aikida sees this and takes note and goes, huh, Noriyuki, not a bad guy. I'm glad Noriyuki was there in that moment to rescue my kid. So what he does is tells Tomo to cross the bridge next. And so now it's just him versus Arimura's men. And Arimura's like, why don't you just take my side and you'll be a lord and you won't be a peasant anymore? And he says like, I would rather be a peasant than be on your side. And so he's the last to cross the bridge and the army is coming behind him. So he tells Lady Tomo to cut the bridge and Motokazu's like, don't cut the bridge because then you'll kill my dad. So General Akita then cuts the bridge himself, taking a bunch of Aramura's men with him. And Lord Noriyuki sees this and he goes like, wow, your dad is going to have 
a true hero's memorial. And in true Indiana Jones fashion, uh, Ikeda is alive. He hung onto the bridge as it swung down and hit upon the cliff. And he's fine, guys. He is. And he realizes that if he had gotten his revenge when he wanted to, it wouldn't actually serve him because he would have just killed the kind of lord that would risk his life for a peasant's son. Later, when Lord Noriyuki is recovering from his wounds and everybody is safe, uh, Lord Noriyuki makes a very special offer to Akita, saying, hey, guess what? A position has just opened. Uh, my council of protocol <laughs> turned out to not be such a great dude. Job offer, do you want to go back to being a samurai? And he declines. Yeah, I love that. And every step of this journey challenged his previous notion of revenge and rewarded him with the knowledge that the life he has built as a farmer has tremendous value and something he never would have gained as a samurai. And now that's the life he truly loves and wants to continue living. Of course, he also sees an opportunity for his son. If there is a position open now, maybe there'll be a position open later. And will you take Motokazu as a vassal so he can be trained in the ways of a samurai and he could be elevated beyond the position of a peasant? You know, because he doesn't want that. He likes being a peasant, but he doesn't want that for his kid. Yeah, he wants his kids at least to have some options open. Outside later, Lady Tomo goes to Akita and is like, hey, I really think you should reconsider Lord Noriyuki's offer because it is your duty to serve the Lord to the best of your ability. Mm -hmm. And Akita replies, um, who is it to say that I am not more suited to serve my Lord as a farmer? And to him, that is particularly true because if he had been following the same path he followed when he was a samurai, Lord Noriyuki would be dead. But I'm interested in how that is going to influence Lady Tomo's way of thinking because we haven't talked about her a lot because most of what she does is follow instructions, more or less. She's just, everything she does is in service to her Lord. So maybe this will help open up her mind to the idea of maybe there is another path that I could take at some point in time. Well, I'm not necessarily going to spoil that for you, Lisa. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Tomo is like Usagi was when he was under service to Mifune. He was trapped to Mifune, and not trapped in like a, with any kind of negative connotation, but that was his honor. He was honor-bound. Tomo is honor-bound to Noriyuki and the Gaishu clan. That just limits her options. She can't run away. You know, she is bound. It actually has to be pretty comforting to mm. be in servitude to a lord because you always know the right thing to do. The it's right your thing. purpose. Exactly, and when you're a ronin, like you're having to judge each and every challenge that comes your way. And there's a hole in Usagi's soul, right? Because he does not have Mifune anymore. He does not have that purpose. I would argue that he does have a purpose. He just doesn't know what it is so clearly. Yes, 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 yes. But when he gets wistful and he stares out uh, across the battle of the Adichie plane, you know, th 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 there's sorrow there. So that's it for Lady Tomo's story for now. 
Now my like my type A personality, we have some like dangling storylines <laughs> that I just like have to address. So when Kitamono was killed by Jay, it turned because Kitamono was Ryoko's familiar, she turns into a pile of feathers and Lord Kotetsu uh, loses his mind. So the conspiracy of eight is now seven and that's it for their story for this volume as well. So here are the pieces that are on the board still. We have Jay who has the grass cutter. We have Usagi who wants the grass cutter but he also kind of doesn't want the grass cutter. We have Inazuma whom we haven't even gotten into. She's a bounty hunter. She is kind of like in a morally gray area, but she is injured and she is being treated at a temple that is run by this priest named Sanshobo. Who's we, a great character. Who we also haven't had time to get into. But that's okay, Lisa, because our focus is Usagi and Tomo and Usagi and Genosuke, they come across the body of Katana Nomo and they're like, well, where's the sword? The sword's missing, where's Grass Cutter? Where's Grass Cutter? And boom, from the shadows steps Jay, he has Grass Cutter. And now we're here for the most epic of epic sword fights or spear versus sword between Usagi and Jay. This is a confrontation that has been building for years, but honestly, it's not something that Usagi wants. He just wants Grass Cutter, but the reader wants this confrontation and Jay wants this confrontation. He tells Usagi like, once I slay you, the evil that has eluded me for so long, I will be welcome to sit amongst the gods. And that's crazy talk to Usagi and that's crazy talk to Genosuke, but to get the sword, if he's got to slay this crazy guy, he's going to do it. Jay stabs Grasscutter into the ground. He's going to go after Usagi with his spear. Because but when he pierces the ground with his sword, it creates an earthquake. Right. And we know that Jay doesn't have power over the sword. Right. Right. So to me, that says that it's been Grasscutter who has been causing the earthquakes throughout this entire story. And calling everyone together. Exactly. Fate, destiny, all that good stuff. What I like about this moment too is that Jay has immediate advantage over Usagi because we've been told that Usagi's terrible in a spear fight. He's great uh, with sword against sword, but once a spear is introduced, it's a little more challenging. But he's got Genosuke on his side, so he's got that advantage. However, Jay makes pretty quick work of Genosuke. There's several pages of this action scene and it does feel extremely satisfying. Stan Sakai is really, you know, deconstructing a battle. He's making it go longer and longer and longer. You feel every panel. Usagi loses his blade in the fight and he actually reaches for Grasscutter and he yanks Grasscutter free, sword in the stone style, and goes against Jai's blade. But Jai got distracted because Keiko comes out of the forest and she's been missing her uncle, so she's weeping. And at that moment when Usagi grabs the grass cutter, a large tree begins to fall on Keiko so that Usagi is able to stab Jay in the back, which I find interesting because it wasn't Jay's evilness that got him killed. It wasn't his bloodlust for Usagi. It was actually his kindness and his love for his niece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's a monster. We know it. 
He dies. He explodes. Uh, when he is stabbed, we see all these demons, all these spirits explode forth from his body in this awesome splash page. And he collapses on the ground and he immediately starts to deteriorate. And burst into flame. Burst into flame, a column of flame so large that the temple, everyone, all the priests there see this column of light explode into the sky. And they go like, oh, what's going on there? Let's go investigate. So Sanashobo takes two of his priests and they go to where the source of the light is and they see Usagi and Ganosuke, but... Jay's body is gone. And those spirits go all the way back to the temple and possess the body of Inazuma, transforming her into the next iteration of Jay. And she then kills all of the priests in the temple. So when Sanshobo returns with the injured Usagi and Gensuke, he comes back to everybody being dead. And... Inazuma is missing, but he goes like, well, it couldn't have been her because she was totally too injured. But I vow to find the killer and bring the killer to justice. Um, In the meantime, he's like, okay, well, what do you want to do with the grass cutter, Usagi? And Usagi's like, I don't know. I don't want it used as a political weapon. And Sancho was like, I've got an idea. There's an imitation grass cutter at the Atsuda shrine. So why don't we just go to the shrine Replace the replica with the real grass cutter and nobody will be the wiser. Hence, Usagi both having and not having the grass cutter. And you get to the final pages of this book and you have Inazuma and Kaiko reunited and and she's like, oh, auntie, there you are. I've been looking all over for you. And so you have this sense of status quo, like what has actually changed over the course of grass cutter when it comes to Usagi's character, not much. And when it comes to Tomo's character, not much. But when it comes to Aikida's character, a great deal. When it comes to Jay's character, honestly, you know, for the original priest body, yeah, maybe some things happened for him, but for the demons, for the spirits, not much has changed for them either. And not much has changed for Kaiko. Maybe that's just what reality is. Some of the kami get what they want, some of the demons get what they want, and so the world turns. But the the, the victory here is what you alluded to earlier in this episode, no conflict. If Grasscutter got into the hands of either the Shogun or the Emperor, there would be a massive war and a massive loss of life. So Usagi interfering here, uh, he saves lives. Keeping the blade out of the Conspiracy of the Eight's hands saves lives. Keeping the blade out of the hands of Lord Noriyuki saves lives. Sometimes the status must be quo. Well, wouldn't you love the status quo of 2015, right, of five years ago? Man, that would... That would feel so good right now. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I think there's something to be said about the status quo, or at least when it's in your favor. We tend to get fixated on all of the horrible things that are happening, but maybe the actual good things that are happening, we don't even notice because because they're like the grass cutter. They just Hmm. fall in the hands of the right person. And an even greater nightmare, or just a different nightmare, is being prevented. This is not the last time that the grass cutter appears in this comic. There is actually a sequel story that, honestly, Lisa, I like even more. And it's about getting that grass cutter to the temple and switching it out. It's like a little bit of a road trip slash heist uh, comic. Ooh, sounds fun. Aikida has such an awesome moment in that book. Like, it's... 
yeah, yeah. So I, I even though we're not going to cover Grasscutter 2 on this podcast, highly recommend checking out Grasscutter 2. Lisa, I want you to read Grasscutter 2 for sure. I, uh, when I get out, I'll, I'll do it. That response does not make me confident, Lisa, that you I'm will. I'm a very busy and important <laughs> woman. But like, let's just take a quick moment before we leave. Look at... Tomo and Usagi, they don't share any time together in this book, but how do we feel about them as a couple or as a potential couple? Right now, I I honestly feel nothing about them as a couple because I I just don't see it. Like, there's like this one kid from my preschool class (laughs) whose name was Neil, and he one day stuck his finger in his ear and got a lot of earwax in it and like stuck it in my face. Uh, But I think about him occasionally is what I'm saying. If I'm looking, if I'm out on a, on a, if I'm overlooking a body of water or I'm, or I'm just driving, I sometimes wonder like, how is Neil? But it doesn't mean that me and Neil are meant to be together. So sometimes you're thinking about Usagi and Tomo being together, but not really. To me, I would need to see more evidence that they're actually interested in each other. Well, that's where we're going next. We're going into Mother of Mountains next. You're going to get Usagi and Tomo together. For me, what I like about Grasscutter is that you see two characters who are on slightly, slightly different paths. And at one point, we're on extremely similar paths. And there is... You're just going to have to trust me. There is chemistry there. There is a bond. There is a connection. There is a spark. But what you see in Grasscutter is mission mode. And why I'm glad we started with Grasscutter is you see them at their purest Mm. and at their best. I wonder if Neil ever thinks of me. Uh, I mean, I certainly don't think of Neil. (laughs) You will now because it was so gross. One thing that does strike me about Usagi and Tomo is throughout this entire storyline, neither of them makes a mistake. It's two characters doing the right thing, which generally would not be a story that intrigues me. But then where you when you add in the chaos of other characters who are more faulty than them, and uh, this idea of Kami kind of lightly pulling the strings to encourage them to make the right choices, it's still engaging. Like, you know them better. Do they ever make mistakes? Uh, Yes, I think they definitely make mistakes. And I think you're going to see some of those mistakes coming up in this podcast series. Ew, you got me hooked. I'm engaged. I want to see what happens with Usagi and Lady Tomo. And, I mean, you have enjoyed Grasscutter, right? Yeah, I found it exciting. I found reading it with the Bushido Code in mind, I found it super insightful. But what I want to know is how you, Brad Gullickson, are going to apply Usagi and Lady Tomo from Grasscutter to our relationship. Well, I mean, it's it's hard to say, like, what I've learned from Usagi and Lady Tomo and how I'm going to apply that to me. I think what I am taking away from this conversation and how it relates to let the samurai be your guide is something that I already have was attracted towards when I'm reading Usagi Yojimbo or watching a samurai movie is this idea of constantly reflecting on self and fighting the battle within the battle with yourself to improve yourself. And in doing that, you will um, help the exterior, like, like improving the interior 
helps the exterior. Mm. And the greatest challenges, the greatest battles, the greatest wars are all inside you. I'm actually thinking something similar. So go ahead and, and turn the question on me. <laughs> uh, okay, Elisa, what are you pulling away from grass cutter and applying to your life? First and foremost, I like the idea of recontextualizing challenges or perhaps even small annoyances to like, ugh, this is such a pain. And changing that <laughs> to, this is a test of my character. If I was the hero of my own story, how would I respond? Like, mm. um, if I search deep inside myself, what do I think is right versus what do I think is convenient? So that's number one. Mm. Number two is I find myself really gravita gravitating toward the idea of like, I know that I'm a samurai. I know that I am a person who has a perfect purpose and I'm, and the more that I experience, the closer I get to my purpose, but I am definitely not like Tomo. I'm, I'm not like a person who feels like, okay, I have an assignment mm. and I'm going to get an A on my assignment. So you're Usagi? I am a Ronin. Mm. I am out there <laughs> judging each thing that comes at me as it comes, and I just try to make the best choice in the hopes that that's going to one day reveal what my true purpose is. And just because I don't know what my true purpose is doesn't mean that I'm not living it out. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think that what separates that idea from Usagi's role as a ronin is that he is still honoring Mifune. The reason, like, he could go and get a job like Tomo, but he chooses not to. He chooses the wanderer's path because... He was so loyal to Mifune. He can't imagine ever being loyal to somebody else the way he was to him. I feel like my Mifune was my music. Mm, uh, interesting. Okay. Where, when I was a little kid, like, I, whenever we would have a career day, I would, I would always be like, I'm a Broadway star. I'm a singer. Like, it's funny because the older I got, the less aspirational. Like, uh -huh. I have a picture that I drew in third grade of me on a Broadway stage. Like, by, by high school, I had already chopped down my expectations for life to lounge singer. I was like, <laughs> what I want is I want to be in a CD bar uh, that sounds great. That's singing, a great. Singing with a raspy voice. That was my my goal. Then I ended up going to music school, and I found out, actually, I do not have the self-esteem nor temperament to be a professional musician on any kind of full scale. Mm. I am a music teacher. I am a person who is paid regularly and very well for my services, but nobody's like... And on the on the sign, oh, it's going to be Lisa Gullickson, and now it's going to be all of the fans of my, like, it's never going to be that thing. But you're bringing your code of music to, to other- It contextualizes everything I do in my yeah. life. It taught me discipline. It taught me focus. And you're giving that to other people now, to your students. Yeah, but I feel like I can't really commit myself hmm. to any other purpose because the ghost of music is always hanging over me. Perhaps I would be the most happy if I just let that master die and then go like, okay, I'm doing something else. I'm no longer, like I'll always be a musician, but I'm no longer 
a professional musician. You, you know what I mean? you got to bury that in a forest. You That's gotta right. You got to lop off its head and bury it in a forest. Perhaps I do. Do you know what I'm really ready to bury and put in the ground? <laughs> this episode. Oh, That's this, not true. This episode's been great. <laughs> this episode's been great. Yeah, I'm, but uh, the right thing, the, the righteous path right now is to wrap it up. Yeah, absolutely. What do we have to look forward to next week? So next week, we're actually not going to jump right into the Mother of Mountains Usagi Ojimbo storyline. We're going to have a creator corner. Ooh. It's been a while. It has been a while. We're going to be chatting with writer Brea Grant, also actor. Uh, she was in the movie um, After Midnight. Yes. Which we're huge fans of After Midnight. We Love saw it flick. at Sundance, not to brag. Oh, I, no. Was that fantastic? Fantastic fest. I go to so many film festivals, You're you so guys. Special. I get them all mixed up. Uh, but we're going to have Brea Grant on here because she is talking about her new graphic novel that she has written. It's called Mary, The Adventures of Mary Shelley's Great, 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 Great Granddaughter. It just came out out. Uh, I, I, I've, I've read the comic. It's a really cool, sweet comic. I think there's a lot there to talk about. So yeah, Creator Corner, it's back. It's nice. And it like, it sounds Halloween adjacent. I haven't read it. It is. It is. It is Halloween adjacent. That's it's, good. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But then don't worry. We're going to get back onto the Wanderer's Road with Miyamoto Usagi and Tomo Ame by jumping ahead quite a bit. And in this story, we're actually going to see the couple occupying the same panel as I promised, Lisa, it happens. Ooh, sparks will fly. We're reading Usagi Yojimbo Book 21, The Mother of Mountains. This is one of my favorites, and it's kind of where I properly fell in love with Tomo Ame as a complete character. Lots of good action and some serious romantic tension between the two here, Lisa. I promise. I promise. Rao. Was that a sexy sound I tried to make? Yeah, Rao. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, like, if I'm honest, it's our third episode where we tackle the trade paperback of Tomo's story that I'm most excited for you to read. And then we're going to close out this series with the miniseries Senso, which takes H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds and marries it into Usagi Yojimbo's universe. Uh, intrigued. Yeah, like, there's going to be a lot to talk about there. Uh, but I, I, think we, I think we've reached the end, Lisa. I think we've reached the end. Our listeners will never know that it took three and a half days to record this one episode. And still pronounce some of the names wrong. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. It got real this week, guys. Uh, But Lisa, where can our listeners find you online? Where can they send their words of affirmation to you? You are so sweet to ask. I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, send them over to at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Brad. Yes. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and iTunes. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. This week, we're talking about the movie Howard the Duck. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our heart and helps the pod. So until next time, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy.